1: Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. Archbishop William E. Lori will ordain six men transitional deacons during a 10 a.m. mass May 20th at the Cathedral of Mary, Our Queen in Baltimore. Becoming a transitional deacon is the final step before a man is ordained a priest. Joining us to talk about his vocational journey is Mike Mazulia, a parishioner of St. Peter the Apostle in Liberty Town, who left medical school to enter the seminary. Mike is one of the men who will be ordained a deacon this spring. Mike, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So tell us a little bit about your background growing up. Uh, what was your parish life like, and were you an altar server, or how were you involved
2: in your parish? Sure. Um, I'm one of five brothers. Uh, my parents are both Catholics, and we I was born at um, St. Or uh, I was born downtown in Baltimore, and uh, so I grew up in Catonsville for a little bit. For the first four or five years of my life, I was at St. William of York and St. Agnes uh, Parish. But I don't have too many memories of being four years old, so we'll skip to being at St. Peter's in Liberty Town, which is uh, the area that my folks moved out to when I was about five. And uh, my grandfather actually was a permanent deacon for uh, a couple, a few decades, really. He was in one of the first few classes of men uh, to be ordained to the tra- uh, permanent diaconate after the council. Um, so I grew up with a, a role model in the church for sure, and uh, was active in my local parish as an altar server since I was a little kid. Uh, I remember June Shadback training me to be. A server at the altar. And every now and then, uh, again, when I head back to St. Peter's in Liberty Town to serve a uh, vigil mass or some type of a uh, feast day, I see June there. But um, yeah, growing up, I I certainly wasn't thinking about the priesthood. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, My mom was an oncology nurse, and my uncle was an emergency room physician. Um, So I was super interested in medicine as far as I was concerned, I thought the human body was the most fascinating sort of puzzle out there. And uh, I was really interested in that. So growing up, I didn't have my eyes focused on the priesthood. Uh, I had a twin brother named Mark. I mentioned I was one of five brothers. So I had a twin brother who went off to seminary in college. And I remember thinking like, "Whoo! all right, that's one of us. You can't get both. Come <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> now everyone has to leave me alone. Don't ask me any questions. <laughs> You got one that's got to be good enough. Um, So I didn't uh, really think a whole lot about it till later in college. That was kind of my my growing up experience. I was involved in my uh, parish youth group and I remember my uh, father has been very involved in church music for uh, a long time since before I was born. And uh, growing up I remember playing music at various masses and retreats and Catholic conferences and things with him and my brothers and I would uh, play in a sort of like praise and worship band, I guess you might call it, and uh, did a lot of that. So we did a lot of that growing up. I helped at a lot of retreats and confirmation programs and things like that. But um, I was never uh, intent on the priesthood at that time.
1: Hmm.
2: Were you homeschooled? I was. Yeah, yeah. I was actually uh, homeschooled all the way through uh, about halfway through high school. And uh, at that time, I started picking up courses at a local community college. So um, it's funny. So uh, a number of vocations have come out of that group. Um, My uh, good childhood friends, uh, Chelsea Moxley, who's now Sister Bethany, with the Daughters of St. Paul. Um, Father Michael Rubling and I were good buddies growing up. We did everything together, Boy Scouts and soccer and all this kind of stuff. And we were all part of that homeschooling group. So um, we would get together for classes as a big group um, each week and then kind of go home and work on our homework and that kind of thing.
1: Was the religious life something that was talked about growing up or in your homeschooling community? Or was it always an option for you?
2: Uh, it was definitely presented as an option. Um, I just wrote it off. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, well, I, I wouldn't say I wrote it off. I just, I just didn't feel any kind of calling to that uh, growing up. I didn't feel there was no like second thought about it. I remember we had um, a brother come in and speak to the the kids and, and some nuns come in and um, kind of present that option. And I had good, close uh, family friends who were involved in religious life. Uh, Father Jesse Bulger lived right down the street from me growing up and uh, another priest of the diocese and uh, his younger brother, Justin also joined the Dominicans. Um, so it was not a foreign idea to me by any, uh, by any means, but um, and we were certainly given the opportunity to discern that. Uh, I just <laughs> Wasn't very, I don't know what to say. I I guess maybe I just wasn't very open at that time. I I was so laser focused on medicine growing up, and that's all I wanted to do. So I think maybe God had a little bit of work on me. (laughs)
1: Well, what changed for you? You went to medical school and then? And then you discern the priesthood,
2: or can tell us a, what what was the chronology there? Sure, yeah. So uh, I went to University of Maryland uh, for my undergraduate degree, and I earned a bachelor's in neurophysiology. It was about halfway through uh, my work there that I had what I would call kind of my adult conversion. So I was raised in a very Catholic family. You know, there was a Eucharistic Adoration chapel at my parish, and I was no stranger to that. And you know, I, I prayed kind of. I don't know quite what to describe my prayer life as up until that point. It was kind of on and off again, but uh, going to daily mass here and there, that kind of a thing. Uh, But I wouldn't have ever described my relationship with God as a personal one. And uh, I remember thinking that my religious experience was kind of like a cultural one or a family one or something like that, like a sort of Um, somewhat cool or dry duty. And I was doing my job and kind of getting it done. And it really wasn't until midway through my undergraduate work that I encountered Jesus Christ as a person, a person who cared about me and someone I could get to know. And that was a huge revelation to me. I mean, I've heard that all growing up, you know, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'd Lied through my teeth. I remember this I was probably like 14 or 15. I can't remember. I was at a conference or something. And this little old lady came up and asked me if I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was like, come on, I'm at a Catholic conference. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, well, yes, of course. And But in my heart, I remember thinking, I have no idea what that really means. And, and it didn't really happen to me until I committed to personal daily prayer. And uh, there was a little Eucharistic Adoration Chapel not far from the University of Maryland campus. Um, I think the parish was St. Mark um, on Adelphi Road, maybe, down there in College Park near uh, DC. And I said, well, you know, I've done music and sports and and all those things. You have to commit and, and do it every day. You have to practice and work hard. So, if I want to see what there is to see about this whole prayer life thing, then I I should come in. And so I committed to an hour in that chapel every day. And uh, I would go there before classes started um, in college. And that ruined my life in a a certain (laughs) sense because it totally changed it. Everything just seemed to turn upside down um, after that. And, And my desires started to transform and all this kind of stuff. And I started to think about, really for the first time ever, uh, what I was doing with myself and, and whether it was what God wanted. Because up until that point, I was just doing what I wanted, pretty much. I remember being in confession one time, and I had been going to daily mass at this point, And a uh, priest asked me, like, hey, have you ever thought about becoming a priest? Maybe it's something you should do. And that blew my mind because no one talked to me about it. No one asked me. I think I had that uh, twin... Uh, brother off in seminary. And they're like, well, you know, we don't want to get too greedy now. So no one really bugged me about that. But when he asked me that, that was a real shock. And so I started to think things over. Um, And it was uh, I graduated. And I wasn't sure what to do. I wanted to go to medical school, but I was curious about the seminary. And I'm someone who's too stupid to learn by anything other than experience. So I decided that it was Time to go off and try the seminary. So after a year of working in the emergency room down uh, in D.C., I joined up with the uh, Archdiocese of Baltimore and was sent to Mount St. Mary's to study philosophy. And how long
1: were you you at the Mount?
2: I was there for two years. uh, And actually, um, I I ended up leaving uh, the formation after two years. I just couldn't get rid of all those kind of old ideas about my life um, and what, uh, what it was for. Uh, I was still kind of obsessed with the idea of becoming a surgeon. Uh, I was really interested in that. And at the time, it was very hard for me to understand how I could be made happy without a family. And uh, I was 23 or so. And um, I just couldn't think of like, Oh, gosh, how could I be happy without that? I just I've always thought about that. I've always wanted it. And uh, I basically just sort of convinced myself that that's what God wanted, too. I was like, well, I really want this. And I can't imagine how God could make me happy without it. And, you know, kind of displaying a pretty juvenile sense of faith in that sense. Um, I was I was convinced that that was what was going to make me happy in the long run. And this had been a great couple of years in seminary. But sayonara, um, I'm headed back to uh, the land of things I understand and uh, can control and predict and analyze and, um, calculate and all that kind of stuff. So I ended up leaving formation and, um, headed back to, uh, the world of medicine.
1: And obviously you changed your mind again and came back. And how did that play out? And how long, how long were you back? in? Oh my was... gosh. Sure. So I,
2: um, I left formation, and uh, I worked for a year, and I had been out of science for a long time, so I had to study up and take the MCAT and everything. Um, So I applied to schools and uh, was interviewing all over the place and ended up in a school out in Chicago called Rush Medical College, known for their orthopedic surgery um, department, which is something I was interested in, either ortho or neuro and um, i was very excited by the work and i kind of went out to school i was like oh yeah this is definitely it and um, I, I found the work very interesting uh, a lot of uh, fascinating individuals working for some really uh, talented and hard-working physicians and research scientists and that kind of thing and i remember enjoying working in the clinic uh, i like diagnostics and that kind of a thing and I remember my first day catching a uh, cardiac arrhythmia and, uh, you know, the doctor had missed it, and I was like, Oh man, this is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you can really hear it on the stethoscope, you know? And so there was things about it that I really enjoyed. And uh, I was doing a, a fair bit of dating at that time too, because I was convinced that was the thing for me. And it was just a funny thing where it was kind of a building sense. Uh, and it really took years because I'm a fairly stubborn fellow and, uh, <laughs> i was so convinced because this was my plan you know it was my plan for my life was to become a a surgeon and get married and have kids and i was so sure that i was right i was sure that i knew what was going to make me happy and so i really had a hard time giving up on that and and god just kind of let me you know keep going and he's like mike 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 you know as the years went by i would i would drive home i remember at the end of a week. And like I said, the, the work was interesting and I enjoyed the the people and all that kind of stuff. But I remember I would drive home to my apartment out there in Chicago and, and just kind of park my car on the street and think, gosh, like, is this, is this it? Like, is this all that there is for me? Because I felt like there was something missing. I had gotten everything that I set out to get. Uh, I had kind of achieved all my goals. I remember, as the president of some neurophysiology, uh, neurosurgery interest group. And I was doing research with a spinal um, neurosurgeon and getting ready to be published and all this kind of stuff. So I was feeling very, you know, accomplished or whatever (laughs) at the time, but I was miserable and it took me years to admit that I was getting my way over and over again and the more I got my way the more my will was done in a certain sense that the more miserable I became and that I just couldn't believe that that was what was happening um, and so I just persevered I just kept pushing through until really I was kind of like too miserable to function and I remember going to mass one Sunday and I was kind of sitting in the back and
0: <laughs> I was like
2: gosh what in the world am I doing? I saw the priests up there in the sanctuary and I was like, man, they're really, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure that, you know, being a physician is, um, you know, it, it is an awesome life. It's an awesome thing to do. It's a tremendous um, road of sacrifice and, and difficulty and raising a family is an awesome vocation. And that's the perfect vocation for someone else. And it was just years and years of doing that um, for me to discover that wasn't the vocation for me. And I remember sitting in that church and seeing the priest up there. And I was like, gosh, how did I leave the seminary? Like, what is going on? How did I end up there? And I sort of revisited all those kind of fundamental vocational questions. Like, what does God want me to do with my life? What sort of a person am I? Where are my gifts and talents and weaknesses and all that stuff spread out? And how do they fit into what God might have in mind for me? And uh, the more I thought about it, uh, I ended up taking a, a year to do research um, as well. That's that's kind of what I said. I said <laughs> I'm taking a year to do research in the middle of medical school. Um, but really, I was kind of thinking things over and I just wanted to put the, the brakes on uh, things and think over whether or not I was heading in the right direction. And I ultimately decided that I wasn't. <laughs> and so I called up Father Roth again, you know, and I said, hey, man, do you remember me? And it had been five years. Um, and uh, I think at the time that I left it, Father Diascanis was the vocations director. And so uh, Father Roth had taken over since then. And it was it was really funny to me, I because I, I remember thinking when I got to the seminary the first time, um, you know, gosh, what a what an embarrassing thing it would be to leave seminary. I'll never do that. And, and then I left seminary and then I was like, well, now that I'm leaving, I'll surely never return. How embarrassing would that be? You know? And then I, I did it all. I did all that stuff. I did all the things I thought I wouldn't do. And, um, and I ended up more peaceful and more happy than I really could have imagined at that time. I, the, the peace that he's brought to my life. Um, and it's really apparent working in the parish more than any other place for me, So it's kind of distinct from a religious vocation. Um, I found the most confirmation for the choices that I've made uh, working in the parish Mm -hmm. and ministering to the people there and uh, working with the families and the individuals um, who end up in your parish has been the most peaceful and kind of joyful thing I could imagine. I remember, like, just not believing. I I couldn't believe how joyful and peaceful uh, my life had become after kind of submitting to God's way and it, the things that I couldn't have imagined making me happy were filling my life with joy in a way that I just would have never predicted. So yeah, it's, it was quite a roller coaster ride, but here I am. Our guest
1: today is Mike Mazulia, a parishioner of St. Peter the Apostle in Liberty Town, who will be ordained a transitional deacon along with five other men may 20th at 10 a.m. at the cathedral of mary our queen we're going to take a little break and when we come back we'll continue our conversation i'm george matasek you're listening to catholic review radio we'll be back in a moment
0: the spirit of your parish community, the power of worshiping together, the warmth of friends, new and old, who share your faith. Join us for Mass this weekend. Visit archbelt.org to find a Catholic parish near you. Feel the joy. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to
1: Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Madisec. Our guest today is Mike Mazulia, a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Baltimore, who will be ordained a transitional deacon May 20th along with five other men at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen in Homeland. Mike, this is such a difficult time in the church in Maryland, especially with the release of the report by the Attorney General on sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And I've talked to a lot of seminarians and priests, and there are a lot of them who say that it's really difficult to walk around in a collar now just because of the suspicion and and doubt that so many people have about priests and, and seminarians. But could you talk about that, the challenge of that and also why you still want to become a priest in the midst of all this?
2: Sure. That's a, a great question, I think, especially in, in regards to discernment. Um, it, I, I would say even since I've been in formation which is about six years, the circumstances have become even more difficult than when I was discerning um, uh, six, seven, ten years ago. I think it's important to acknowledge that it is a difficult uh, kind of kink to add to the discernment process and, and not brush it away. It's challenging for, I think, a young man uh, when he's looking for someone to follow. Uh, he's looking for a father um, to follow kind of in, into life, into the spiritual world, uh, which is kind of a, a combat of sorts to recognize that, you know, there's been some serious mistakes and some serious uh, missteps uh, in the church. And it, really, if, if you make yourself a student of history, that's not a, a terribly new phenomenon. Um, it is certainly a, a difficult one. But uh, kind of the simplest, <laughs> maybe crude analogy, even uh, in its simplicity, um, I, I heard someone say this and I was like, oh, that's kind of true. The only people who run into like a burning building are firemen. And uh, it's certainly the case, um, you can look at the news, you can look at the data, you can look at the trends. It's certainly the case that things aren't trending in a in a good direction in terms of numbers of people in the pews or um, numbers of churches that are open or even numbers of people that are being ordained. Um, those have been pretty static uh, for a long time. And in Baltimore, our, our numbers are kind of bolstered in uh, part by uh, folks coming in kind of in, in the spirit of missionary work almost from other countries and being ordained for this diocese. So it's almost like, uh, you know, the church is in trouble. And it, is there anyone who will like step up and run in and try to save what's left? <laughs> and the answer for me is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I think anyone who's who's stepping into this role. Can't be naive about that. You know, it's it's not going to be um, a situation where, you know, you're lauded for wearing the collar. Uh, if anything, you know, I think you you might watch your back depending on what street you're walking down <laughs> um, if you're wearing a collar. And I'm studying at St. Mary's and uh, Roland Park in Baltimore and guys from Cameroon and Nigeria are asking about how priests are treated in America. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, people are running across the street the street to kiss our, you know, fingers and, you know, tell us how great we are. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's going to happen to you in downtown Baltimore. Uh, maybe a slightly different experience. So, yeah, um, on, on the flip side, though, I have to say that I wasn't deterred by that in the least because um, I, I'm really looking to Jesus Christ as, as my example. Because if you look to any man you're going to be disappointed uh, in in some sense. And one of the most consoling uh, realities to me in in regards to this question is the Gospels themselves and and reading about the apostles uh, because they are screwing stuff up all the time. And they're, they're misinterpreting Jesus's teachings. They're misapplying them, making mistakes, fighting with each other. You know, and, and all the rest, I was like, oh man, these guys are human beings too. And Jesus founded his church on human beings, and he knows that we are screwed up. And anywhere you get a large enough number of human beings, you're going to find people doing the stuff that human beings do. Um, and it's particularly traumatic and difficult to see that happen in the priesthood because of the stance of moral leadership that... A priest is meant to take so it's a it's even more tragic in a certain sense um but it's it's a part of uh being a human being i think uh, if you look through history this kind of strange and difficult reality of original sin can be found in in every institution and in every organization um, i certainly saw it in medicine so people were saying you know like oh why don't you go back to medicine there's none of that there and i was like oh my gosh you gotta be kidding me <laughs> It's just that it's, uh, you know, a juicy news bite when something happens in the church because we make a moral claim. We make uh, a stance of take a stance of leadership in terms of moral teaching and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, like a police officer or maybe even a judge or uh, a physician isn't held to the same kind of standard. But everywhere I've ever gone, I've, I've found this type of reality, the reality of sin. My interest is um, in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and becoming more and more conformed to him. So that's kind of what I keep my sights focused on.
1: We have about a minute left. Uh, would you have any advice for a young man who's considering a call to the to the priesthood? Or, or, and also, are there any misconceptions out there about life in the seminary?
2: Um, yeah, I, I think uh, <laughs> this, is, this is all I'll give it with this question. There was a high school group who came through. And I remember uh, one of the guys who's probably 15 years old or something, uh, I was doing a QA and the kid asked, when did you stop liking girls? And <laughs> I, I busted out laughing. I thought that was a hilarious question because <laughs> the answer is never. Like, I'm a human being and so is every other priest you've ever met. Uh, and that's a good, there's, there's lots of good things to do in the world. Getting married is one of them. Uh, raising children is one of them. And what happens when you're being called to the priesthood is that there is a good that God has laid out for you that's very specific to your heart and your mind and your history and your disposition. Um, And it's not that other things start to look bad or repulsive to you. It's just that you found a pearl of great price, as it were, Mm -hmm. uh, that makes all the sacrifices worth it. Like, don't don't let anyone tell you it's not a sacrifice. (laughs) Uh, or that like, you know, giving those things up is nothing. It's something. It's just that what you're gaining in return uh, makes it all worth it.
1: Well, our guest today has been Mike Mazzulia, a parishioner of St. Peter in Liberty Town, who will be ordained a transitional deacon along with five others during a 10 a.m. mass May 20th at the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen in Homeland. Mike, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: For Catholic Review Radio, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow The Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app.